Uh, tonight we're going to do a study on Psalm 73, if you would please turn there with me. Psalm 73. We are going to be meditating upon the entire psalm. And uh, we're going to be focusing on some of the key doctrines in it, uh, conveyed by the author. So we're going to go ahead and start by reading the entire text. I'm reading, by the way, from the ESV um, but let's read God's word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. And, O King Eternal, we approach Your throne because of what Christ has done for us. And we ask You, Lord, that You would grant us success as we seek Your face. We thank You for this passage of Scripture that teaches us the feebleness of men and Your power and Your grace. Grant us success, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
It's going to be hard to get through this entire song. Um, there are th- basically three ways that we can um, divide this psalm. Or, I mean to say, there are uh, many different ways that we can uh, divide this psalm. But um, I have chosen to do it in, in three different categories. Uh, the first one, I, I've titled it, A Man Tempted. And that ranges from verse ranges, sorry, from verses two through fourteen. And what we see is the writer's temptation to envy the wicked, and also, uh, you may say, as a subheading to that, to conclude that striving or his striving for purity had been in vain. Uh, the second part I've titled it "A Mind Renewed." It ranges from verses 15 to 20. And it speaks of his triumph over that temptation and the means by which that triumph came. Thirdly, I've titled uh, verses 21 to 28, A Heart Transformed. And what we see is his repentance and his renewal to a state of confidence in the Lord, joy in him, uh, what some theologians would call a state of felicity, of being in, in right relationship with God after repentance and uh, trusting in Him. And we must notice that when he begins uh, to write this psalm, when he picks up his pen, he is in that state. He's already gone through the temptation. He's overcome. Um, he succeeded. And he picks up his pen and he's in a, in a state of worship of worship towards God. So he picks up his pen and starts writing this psalm and he begins by the conclusion. So what we see when, when we begin reading this psalm is uh, the conclusion. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Um, what we must infer from reading this is that the psalmist is speaking of a very specific kind of goodness, a special kind of goodness. Because you would have to ask him, isn't God good to everyone? And the answer to that would be, yes, God is good to everyone. Unbelievers, though at enmity with God, they still receive from His hand a vast amount of blessings. To varying degrees, they are given sunlight and food. They are given times of enjoyment with friends and loved ones. They are given children and health and long lives. They're given jobs and labor on the earth. All these things come from the hand of God. If you would please uh, turn with me to Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Here the psalmist beginning at verse 14, says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. And this is uh, good for everyone who lives on the earth, not just Christians. Uh, Everybody... we can say uh, definitely everyone we know gets to eat every day. Uh, and then we go down to verse 20 to 23. 
He speaks, uh, you made darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. So you see there that God provides even protection for man. In this case, he is having the young lions uh, hunt during the night. And then when uh, the lions go back to the den, then man comes out and and, uh, engages in his task, right? He goes to work. Uh, Which, by the way, work is a blessing. Have you seen how... Uh, depressed men can get when they have no longer work to do. Um, that, yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's good for us as Christians to always be engaged in the work of, of God. Um, that gives us an extra level of uh, having reasons to live here on earth. So he protects man from the beasts of the forest, uh, believers and non-believers alike. Then you go down to verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Think about it. With good things. Even people who are unbelieving and wicked. They are filled with good things. When you hide your face, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Another passage is in uh, Matthew five forty four to forty five. You guys don't have to turn this. It's a it's a very familiar passage to us. Uh, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees say, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What for? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise, and the evil on the evil and on the good, and sends His rain on the just." And on the unjust. Now, if you are tempted, or just in case you are tempted to believe that God only gives these things to unbelievers so that He can heap up uh, judgment on their head, I would point you to Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, where it, He says, "As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live." As a matter of fact, the wicked are more often than not under the the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. And this too is an act of grace. So think about it. Men are never as bad, or most times men are never as bad as they would be if God wasn't exercising force, a miraculous force from the Holy Spirit on them. We can see this, and that's why it is the standard of Jesus on His Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-eight. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so God, that's why He looks at the heart. Uh, the reason why a man may not perhaps physically or actually commit adultery uh, every time that he looks at a woman with lust, can be traced to the Holy Spirit's restraining power. He may have allowed a, the man to discern, for example, the consequences of his action, the, the pain that he could bring upon his, his, uh, his family, or uh, the husband's 
vengeance or his society's, his society's scorn, uh, but he wouldn't have it in himself to know these things. We read in Genesis 8, uh, 21, after God uh, floods the earth and every living creature has been uh, ex- extinct, is extinct from the uh, face of the earth, Noah is left and Noah offers sacrifices to God. And God says, I will never curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, John Calvin wrote that some men are restrained only by shame, others by fear of the loss from breaking into many kinds of wickedness, some aspire to an honest life and deeming it most conductive to their interest. Thus God by His providence curbs the perverseness of nature, preventing it from breaking forth into action yet without rendering it inwardly pure. And we have seen this uh, even in the unbelieving world, there was a, a famous uh, basketball coach, John Wooden, not a believer as far as I know, uh, and he is known for saying that the true test of a man's character is what he does with no one's watching. And uh, even even non-believers understand that there is a measure of res- of restraint that is that is placed upon us. Uh, lastly, I have I do have an example on uh, Genesis. 37, we see this very well illustrated in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Genesis 37, uh, verse 20. You guys, uh, most of you know the story. They become angry at Joseph because Joseph is dreaming dreams about them bowing before him. And when they see him at a distance, all his brothers, uh, they say to one another, verse 20, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce, man, a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Their intention was to kill Joseph. But th- see, this is the restraining power of God. Verse 21, When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. So then they end up just uh, casting him into a pit, leave him for dead. Meanwhile, their intention was always to kill him. But they don't because of God's grace. Uh, in chapter 50th, when we see that everything has worked out for good, uh, Joseph has been sold into slavery. And then he ascends the ranks in Egypt. And now he is number two only to Pharaoh. We see in uh, verse 20 of chapter 50, after he sees his brothers and they feel bad because they think that he is going to kill them. uh, He says, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Again, what we see from God is that He is constantly good to unbelievers and believers alike. Everybody that has ever lived in this world has been treated kindly by God. Um, However, when we approach verse 1 of Psalm 73, the psalmist is saying, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure 
in heart. That is his children, God's own people. If you want a, a good way to read this uh, verse, you would say, God is good to Israel. That's the name of the street, as it, as it were. Those who are pure in heart, that would be the house number. Uh, to give you another, another analogy, uh, God is good to Israel, that is the country. Those who are pure in heart, that would be the name of the city. Um, because if you go to uh, Romans 2, verses 28 to 29, you will see Paul clearly explaining to the Romans, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We all also see in John chapter 8, verses 39 and 40, Jesus in speaking to the Pharisees, or as a matter of fact, they are speaking to Him, and they say, or they answered Him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children you would be doing the work or the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So what did Abraham do? Anybody? He believed, right? Mm -hmm. And that was counted to him as righteousness. And that faith, by the way, was not of himself. It was a gift from God. If you would, uh, uh, Philippians to wait, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So who is an Israelite? Those whom God chose for Himself before the foundations of the world to be His children. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Romans 9, 6 and 8. One more. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac, through Isaac shall, be, shall your offspring be named. That's a, he, the writer is quoting Genesis 21 verse 12. And that was the promise that God gave to Abraham through Isaac. Your offspring shall be named. Now notice, Abraham had more than one child. He had many of them. Um, this means, uh, uh, I'm reading verse 8 now says that this, mean, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So when we see that God is good to those who are pure in heart, that purity is rather descriptive than it is prescriptive. It is uh, telling 
of their identity, not necessarily the things that they do. I, I remember being uh, a much younger believer and getting to Psalm 73 and reading that first portion and not being able to read the, the rest of the psalm because truly God is good to, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I'd say, I'm not pure in heart. <laughs> so um, God is the one who purifies our heart through the Lord Jesus Christ who took the cross on our behalf. Of course, we are commanded to purify ourselves time and time again. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is what a pure heart looks like. Look, it's, it's one that, having been cleansed by faith, continues to purify itself uh, by coming to Christ in repentance and living a lifestyle of uh, holiness and confession before Him. These are the children of God. And as we see um, in the text tonight, they too are feeble and weak. So we get to our, our first point, a man tempted, ranging from verses 2 to 14. Excuse me. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now notice, when he's speaking about my, my feet uh, almost stumbling and my steps nearly slipping, what he's talking about is leaving God altogether, uh, renouncing his religion. And um, my, I can prove that to you by reading down in verse 13, where he says what that... Uh, that temptation was uh, consisted in. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He is uh, coming to the conclusion that he, uh, all his religion, everything had been in vain. And it says, for I was envious, notice this, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that usually is the first problem when we see, right? When we see the prosperity of the wicked. Now, that might have come uh, merely through his negligence. Uh, there is a sense in which we can become uh, negligent in our prayer, our reading of the scripture, our communion with the saints, and so we, we will be abiding in temptation, how uh, John Owen put it. Uh, but also, uh, Righteous men are also tempted, or righteous men and women are also tempted. Uh, temptation comes just like uh, Jesus himself was tempted. Now, uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in this verse, uh, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this is when things start going bad for him when he takes his eyes off of Christ and the heavenly things and is, uh, starts to wander into sin. I would uh, remind you of Lot's wife. We can only look at one, time, uh, one place at a time. Lot's wife is flee, fleeing 
uh, Sodom. She looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. She took her eyes off of the prize. That's why uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely. Let us run with endurance the faith, uh, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We also see Matthew six twenty two. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So uh, we must be careful in what we set, set our eyes upon. Uh, now, I would, I would also submit to you that what the psalmist is beginning to believe here in verse 3 and then on all the way through verse 14 is actually this, the things that the wicked would have him believe. And so we go down, for they have, uh, this is verse 4, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I guess they did have a different culture back then because today their bodies would be fit and sleek. But, uh, <laughs> they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, please turn with me to Job 21.7. That's the book before Psalms. And uh, this passage is a really good parallel to uh, Psalm 73. Actually, they read almost the same. Beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes, their houses are safe from fear. And pay attention to this. No rod of God is upon them. And that is what marks the difference between God's children and the children of wrath. That for the children of God, there is a rod that is upon us, but it's a rod of love because we are His children right proverbs 3 11 and uh proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 my son do not despise the lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights we also see this proverb um quoted by the author of hebrews that would be in the, ch in the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7. And so he quotes, he quotes the proverb, 
says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It reads a little bit different maybe in your translation because it is being translated from the Septuagint, uh, which was the Greek New Testament or Old Testament. Uh, verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have part participated, then you are Ill illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they uh, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Did you catch that? So this whole thing has always been about holiness. And that is why the wicked prosper. And that is why we as saints have to endure suffering. It's because God is working in us to make us holy. Right? And that's Verse, also why there's just a few of us. Because <laughs> without God's Spirit causing us to want this, it would never happen. Right. Right. We'd all be wicked. We'd mm -hmm. all be chasing the almighty dollar and all the stuff and... Because that's what we want. Amen. And doesn't, doesn't, doesn't a text like this uh, differentiate for you what a true religion is as opposed to false religion when uh, God's people are in it for the rod? Right. <laughs> when you know that what it takes to be a Christian <laughs> is that you will be in it for the rod. Right. But you want that holiness because uh, as we will see at the end of the psalm, the psalmist, his head is... On high, we've already read that. I mean, he's not thinking about this earth. He's saying, "Who have, who do I have in heaven but you?" His whole soul and heart is on heavenly things. That is, we'll get there. That is the renewal of our minds. Uh, so, verse, verse eleven. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a peaceful fruit of righteousness. In the end, there is more peace than what the wicked have. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, so going back to Psalm 73, verse 6, that's where we are. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. As we see, these are men that are taking all the blessings that we spoke uh, that God gives to His children. Psalm 104, He's talking about uh, wine to gladden the, he the heart of man, bread to strengthen him, oil to make his face shine. But what we're seeing is that 
that these uh, wicked men are taking these very same things and they're twisting them. They, t they turn uh, the, wine, the wine that God gives uh, as a gift to men into drunkenness. They turn the bread into gluttony, right? Their eyes swell out through fatness. I mean, they just, they, they just indulge on it. Uh, and their, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten, they threaten oppression. So first, they attack their fellow human beings. And then they reach the worst, which is they set their mouths against the heavens. And they blaspheme God. And their tongue struts through the earth. <coughs> this is really well illustrated in <coughs> Second Chronicles. Bless you, Bob. Second uh, <laughs> Chronicles 32. This is Second uh, uh, Chronicles 32. It's the story of uh, Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Um, and he is the king of Assyria. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, one of the few good ones, uh, he, was, he seemed to be a personal friend of Isaiah. If you remember the book of Isaiah, it says that the, and the year of the death of Hezekiah was in the, uh, was in the, in the house of God and the throne. He was, they were, they were uh, good friends. If you read verse 20, uh, chapter 32, verse 20, then Hezekiah uh, and the king and Isaiah, the prophets, the son of Amos, prayed. Uh, but anyway, the story goes something like this. Uh, Hezekiah had been a faithful king up to this point. And the king of Assyria is planning on attacking Judah. Uh, they are actually in Jerusalem. And so uh, Hezekiah says, we're going to resist th this man. The uh, king of Assyria had been conquering all the lands that were uh, close by. And so he gets to work with his men. He starts building um, arm. He starts stockpiling ar uh, arms. He starts cutting off supplies outside of the city. And so uh, he, on verse 7, speaks to his men and says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So what happens is that the king of Assyria hears about this and he is so... Uh, against God and against God's people that he doesn't even bother to come to, to Jerusalem, but rather he sends messenger, messengers writing to not Hezekiah, but the people of Israel. And uh, he's writing to them and saying, uh, is not mis uh, this is verse 11. Is not Hezekiah, this is the messenger of the king of Assyria, telling the people, it's not your king, Hezekiah, misleading you, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. If you go down to verse 14, he starts uh, setting his mouth against the heavens, as we've seen. Who among all the gods of the nations have my father's devoted to destruction, was able to deliver his people from my hand. 
that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Verse 15, Now therefore do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And by the way, this is not the only king that, use, that, that uses this kind of language. We can see it in Exodus 5 too. We see uh, Pharaoh himself saying, Who is this God that I should let, let your people go? Uh, there's also uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's saying, uh, your God will not be able to, to save you from the flames. And so what you see is that the men who have been given the most end up committing the highest of treason against God. Against their provider, right? The more God gives them, the more they take those blessings and turn them against Him. And He's being nothing but good. And He's actually restraining uh, their evil. They could have been more evil, I suppose. Um, verse 10 in Psalm 73. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, there is a measure of disagreement amongst commentators and translators as to how this verse is to be interpreted. I just read you the ESV. I think your translations will probably read very uh, differently than from mine. Uh, the NAS reads, uh, Therefore his people turn to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Is that what it says on yours? Uh, and... I think the the King James and the NIV read that way. But I'm going to go ahead and scratch my ESV because I think that what happened was that they tried to uh, kind of simplify the passage and the conclusion that they came up with I don't, I don't think is uh, accurate. Uh, so we'll go with the NAS. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Now, what I believe this verse is saying... Uh, is that when it says, therefore his people return to this place, what, they're, what he's trying to say is people come to the place where I am, where they are tempted to believe that the evildoers are, or they're envy, envying the evildoers. Uh, it says, now uh, the waters of abundance are drunk by them. That is, uh, he is making a reference to suffering. They are made to suffer. Remember Christ drinking the the wrath of God uh, in a way the cup a cup of suffering you see David also referring uh, to to uh, eating his own or drinking his own tears when he was uh, crying and uh, the affliction uh, the affliction produced by the arrogance of these men are are the saints are being made to drink. Psalm 119.36 My eyes shed, shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Or Psalm 75.8 In this case, this is God. For in, for in the hand of God there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down from the dregs. So, affliction. 
now verse 11 says, And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These are now the wicked speaking. Though God is good to them every day and gives them even the air they breathe, they refuse to acknowledge Him. Verse 12, These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He had been, at this point, I believe, completely deceived by the the appearance of what was ha- taking place with the evildoers. He had concluded that they're always at ease and they increase in riches. Now verse 13, and I would call this verse uh, the psalmist's rock bottom. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Why is it rock button? Because he's actually now despising God's discipline. He's complaining about it. Right? So he had begun his descent when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts going down, 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 down. And then he is deceived by the, and says and concludes, they're always good. And then hits rock bottom where he says, I have always been pure for nothing. Right? Now, verse, uh, the next verse, 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And that's when, this is when we see that the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because he never actually voiced his conclusions. Right? If he would have done so, he would have sinned against God's children. And you know what happens when you sin against God's children, right? Uh, Matthew 18.6 But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Those are the words of Jesus. So the, the, that, the fear of God does not allow him to actually say anything. And so he starts trying to understand, verse 15. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He begins by trying to understand it in his own mind, right? And, right, in his own humanness. And he can't understand it. So he gets tired. He doesn't know what to think. Until, verse 17... I went into the sanctuary of God. And this is the second, pa- the second part, a mind renewed. Psalm 27.4 One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You notice it was all about the flesh? Always, always, the flesh the whole time it's going about the flesh. Yeah. They got, they, I don't have, I did, 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 I did,
go that way, then you all of a sudden reset. He reset your eyes. He reset, right? Romans 12. Uh, Therefore, brethren, do not be conformed to the patterns of this word, but, uh, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he says that then uh, he discerned their end. He not only saw by seeing the beauty of God, he discerned also the end of the wicked. Yes. I think it's, his whole section is interesting in that as he questions and questions, he's trying to convince himself that like you said, denounces religion and convince himself that it's God's fault. But instead, it leads him back to the truth, I think. Right. And, you know, to me, that's just a powerful example of the way <coughs> the Spirit works in this. Yeah. God don't let you go so far. and He, let, he lets you go down these thinking like this. Because mm-hmm. then he lets you at that place. So what are you going to, so what? You know, what are you left with? Well, right. you're left with your, in your own pity, in your own self-awareness. And mm-hmm. then you have to, but you can't forsake him. You know better. Well, and we can't escape our humanness either. Yeah. We look at all this stuff. <laughs> and we want time. some of this stuff too. <laughs> Why is life so boring? Yeah. yeah. How come they get all of it? They're not even doing right. They're being look mean at to people. Look at them. Look at them. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's a good point. It's, that's, like, a, it's like a circle. It's a circle. Yeah. I do this. I do this. It's yeah. frustrating. And then I say, Oh right, right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I did it. I did it. Oh, right. <laughs> oh yeah. And that, and, and and that's why we are given the the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the coming together uh, as believers, the Lord's supper, all these things to remind us of God's love for us. Anyway, uh, verse verse eighteen. Uh, but when actually. Okay, we already saw uh, Sunday. Okay, 18. Uh, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I was uh, sharing uh, with Pastor Luke Cummings about this, and he made a really good point. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Anyone who's not in Christ is in a slippery place, right? Because we build our house on a rock. And notice that God sets them in slippery places. The world is a slippery place that one day will be burned with fire. The difference between them and us is that we have been uprooted from this world and we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ while unbelievers are planted here and everything that they have is in this world. Verse 19 how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. My a translation reads phantoms. Yours might read something like figure or image or fantasy or form. But this is actually making a reference to the resurrection of the body when God uh, lifts them or, or ha- has them rise from the grave so that he can uh, judge them. It's either that or simply when they wake up in hell, they will have been uh, destroyed, right? And uh, like one awakening, we see that they are nothing but a shadow too. They're being referred to as phantoms because all that they had was so it was it was just missed. It was disappearing. 
right? And so uh, when we see, for example, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man, had, he had no name. You hear the rich man and Lazarus because his whole identity was tied to his sin, right? And so uh, he had no name, and this happens all the time throughout the Psalms. Uh, next, verse 21. And by the way, you guys know what happened to uh, the king of Assyria? He later on goes back to, he's setting his, ma- his mouth against the heaven, and he goes back to Assyria because God had killed all of his officials. So he goes back to his country and when he gets there he goes into the house of his idol and his sons kill him (laughs) so it's a complete irony what God does to him and so uh, point number three and the last one a heart transformed verse 21 when my soul was embittered I was pricked in heart I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast toward you Now notice, his mind has been renewed. And so he has a right view of himself. He has a right view of his sin, therefore he is repenting. Notice how he also is uh, acknowledging his sin. And uh, I would point you to James chapter 4. This is really important. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God... And He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The psalmist here is calling himself, he's saying, I was, I was a, a beast towards you. Now, did God exalt him? Most surely he did. Because the man, that, the man that he's writing about, the wicked and the evildoers of his time, we don't know their names. They've been wiped away by history. But we know who wrote this psalm. His name was Asaph. And his writings are still being used by Christians. Uh, I mean, his writings are being used by God to sanctify his people. Talk about God... Uh, exalting someone right uh, so again we don't remember their names but we do, we do remember his uh, verse 23 and this is a grace remember his mind had been renewed he had the right view of God as well he had the right view of him and he had the right view of God Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God holds him. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Praise God. He has his uh, sight set on glory, not on this passing world. Uh, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, this is one of the most uh, intimate expressions of worship 
that you can find even in the Psalms. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's already outside of himself, outside of this world. He's in heaven. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Notice he has already changed his view. He's not saying no longer that they're always at ease. and No, he's saying they shall perish. And you put an end of, to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works and tell us he did, right? Uh, now, just real quick to, to wrap it up. I have uh, two applications. Uh, the first one would be for us to uh, strive to keep our eyes on Christ. Um, if you, just a practical application, if you're constantly lending your eyes to, to the world, when you sit down and you watch a movie, you're lending your eyes to the world, right? If you're constantly doing that, and that is a, an unhealthy pattern, then you will be tempted to envy the evildoers, because that is what they will show you. Um, social media, it goes the same way. So instead, train yourself for godliness. Uh, learn to immerse yourself in prayer and the reading of the scripture. Whenever you have extra time, learn to pick up a Bible instead and read it. And it'll be more beneficial to you than uh, lending your eyes to the TV, maybe at a time when you're not ready to be uh, exposed to that. We're not always ready. We always must be on guard. But sometimes we do lower our guards. And that's a bad time for uh, Satan to catch you, right? Uh, John, always, John Owen said, if, you, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Uh, when this is true in our lives, a passing temptation... Will, uh, uh, sorry, I didn't read the whole quote, but it's a good quote. <laughs> uh, and the, the, other, uh, the other application that I have is, uh, when temptations do come, which they will, even if you are the most spiritual... Uh, Seek to be sober-minded like the psalmist was. Notice that he did uh, come to a place where he, in his heart, was already in sin. Yet he never actually said it out loud. But to think and try things out slowly, it's a good thing, before acting upon sinful conclusions that we might have arrived at. Those are good things. Any comments? That verse 25, Alan, I, uh -huh. I love that. I have, have longed for that to be true of my earthly life. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Amen. Nothing else. Nothing. Yeah. I can't imagine that I see it. Sometimes. <laughs> Amen. All right, well, let's pray. 
And Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us together. We pray that uh, your word would not return void to you, but that it might take root in our hearts, that uh, we might find in Psalm 73 a, an arrow for our quiver, that we might uh, go to this text and uh, read from it and be reminded that our uh, citizenship is not in this world, but in heaven. Uh, take us home safely, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.